privilege and the joy that belongs to each of us this morning is truly a grand one. We've been blessed with life, the capability of gathering today. Things with you and with me are well enough to permit that. And as we noted a bit earlier on our sick list, are many for whom that privilege has not been granted as thoroughly as with you and me. Certainly how thankful we should be to the God of heaven that things are with us are good. As the year has begun, we certainly can hope that with our year here at Pippin and with each of us as families and individuals, that our year will allow us to serve God more thoroughly, greatly, and beneficially than perhaps we have in days past. And in a way, that prompted me to give some thought and consideration to the title of the lesson today. You might have noted, as Brother Adam read a moment ago from Matthew 13, what happens when men sleep? That shall be the subject of the lesson today, and might we begin it with some introductory thoughts arranged quite like this. As we give some thought and consideration to commonplace warnings that are sounded round about us, if you walk near some buildings or other places, you might well see a sign that says danger, high voltage. You might well in other cases see someone set out a sign that says danger, slippery floor. Or there might be other road signs that warn us about bridge closed ahead. We're familiar with warnings and how serious indeed it is to take the message of that warning and make application of it lest we not only harm ourselves but perhaps harm others as well. Warnings are in fact sounded all throughout the wonderful Word of God, warning us about things that lie in our path and things that perhaps are beyond what you and I can see physically, but nonetheless, the warning is given and we would do well to pay great heed to it. That in fact will place the backdrop for the lesson this morning. What happens when men sleep? May I suggest we move through the lesson somewhat like this. Let's first give some thought to the context in which that verse appears, namely the parable of the tares, and following that, draw the lesson from it and ask, what indeed does or can befall those who are found to be sleeping? Without further ado in that regard, the parable of the tares. As it is unfolded for us in Matthew 13, there is a great deal of familiarity with it. It begins there in verse 24 with a recognition of, in fact, the kingdom of heaven is like. The Lord is drawing a comparison, a simile, if you will, between this parable he's now relating and the glories of the kingdom of heaven. We will remember some of the details of it. There was a gentleman who sowed good seed in his field, no doubt expecting a wonderful and bountiful harvest. However, in verse 25, while men slept, enemies sowed tares amongst the wheat. It seems that it wasn't that long before, in fact, it was realized by the servants, and they came and told the householder, Didst thou not sow good seed in thy field, wherewith then hath it tares? In fact, on that occasion, as they asked what should be done, it was the master, the householder, who said, Let them alone for now, for if you try to root up the tares now, you'll pull up the wheat too. Leave them alone until harvest, and then in the harvest separate them. Didn't he in fact give the instruction, Gather first the tares and bind them to be burned, and then gather the wheat into my barn? As we can imagine at least in our mind's eye, the matters of that parable. We can now understand the interpretation was given by our Lord. In fact, beginning in verse 29, it was the disciples who in fact asked Jesus, declare unto us the parable of the tares. 
They were interested in the meaning. They were greatly desirous to know what were the fundamental lessons that Jesus desired them to glean from that parable. And thus, beginning in verse 30, Jesus expounded the meaning of the parable. He identified what each part represented. If you wish to take note of the manner in which that is seen for us, specifically, in verse 36, declaring to us the parable of the tares of the field, the disciples said, and then in verse 37, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Lord was thus giving us a vivid description of what shall befall the character of the judgment. When there shall in fact be the coexistence of good and evil all the while here upon earth. But then, but then... On that mighty day of judgment, when all shall appear, there shall in fact be a separation. There shall be those who are, if you please, bound, ready to be burned. Those who have rebelled against the God of heaven, failed to obey his will, not lived in accordance to his promised reward. To them, they shall be like the tares. But on the other hand, those that are gathered into the barn are those who in fact have lived faithfully. They have, to the best of their capability in the pursuit of obedience to the word, done that which the Lord demanded of them. They've employed their time, their talents, their energies in the way that God demanded. And to them, notice they're gathered into the wholesome reward called the barn. Just as surely as that parable of the tares is set before us, and it reminds us about the responsibility that's ours to live in a way that we should be like the wheat and not like the tares. We should, of course, expectantly ask about some of the other details of the parable. As you come near the close of that particular sheet, of that particular slide, you'll notice that in verse 43 we're told, Who hath ears to hear? Let him hear. There's a dire warning presented here, a warning that we should not soon bypass nor allow to slip past us. Because you'll notice in the verses that follow the field, Jesus said represented the world. You and I know that in the world there is much evil. There is much wickedness. There is much that is opposed to the things of God. You and I, as we exist in it, are of course surrounded by that evil, but we ought not to give in to it, of course. And can we not also appreciate the grand extension of this question? What happened in this parable when men slept? What took place when men slept? That's when the enemy sowed the tares. Might I ask, what might that mean for you and me today? And in what way might we push that forward and learn some rather vital and eternally essential lessons from it? For when men slept is when the tares were sowed. Consider the following with me. First, about the matter of sleeping. The notion of sleeping is found in a variety of ways in the sacred text some of which are of great beauty and are of great benefit and value, of course, to the physical frame. But consider briefly the following, that that's not the only way in which the word sleep can be employed. To give some thought to that, when it says in Genesis 2.21 that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, Adam was in deep sleep, physical, literal sleep. 
it was on that occasion, wasn't it, that in fact was when the procedure that brought about the woman became a reality. But notice in, say, Esther 6, verse 1, we have another reference. Here, King Ahasuerus had a night in which he could find no sleep. Maybe many of us have known what a sleepless night, or at least a night with little sleep, is like. The king had a night like that, and then during that occasion was when he read the chronicles of the kingdom and learned what Mordecai had done for him. In Luke 9, verse 32, we find Peter, James, and John had slumbered in sleep there on the Mount of Transfiguration before the marvelous transfiguration of the Master. You see, the Bible frequently speaks of sleep in the way that's most familiar to you and me. But that isn't the only way that the word is employed. In John 11, verse 11, the word there by Jesus was used to refer to death. Remember, he said, Lazarus sleepeth. Later in that same chapter, when he unfolded more carefully because the disciples didn't understand, they said, Master, if he's sleeping, he's doing well. Jesus said he's dead. Thus, there are instances in which the word sleep is used as a descriptive manner that refers to death itself. There's an Old Testament passage in which that's also the case in Daniel 12, verse 2. Notice when those that sleep in the earth, well, they're dead. When you and I consider that sleep is used in those two ways, that still doesn't exhaust the list, for it's also used in a third manner as well. It can also have reference to lethargy, spiritual laziness, spiritual indifference, that manner of life in which one is not as concerned with things that are of utmost importance, but diverts his attention elsewhere. Those kinds of people are said to be asleep as well. And it is that latter case that will be the subject primarily of our lesson this morning. What happens when men sleep? I've listed three verses for your consideration in regard to that one. Actually, there's two there. Another will come shortly. In Ephesians 5.14 as well as Romans 13.11. In those two instances, Paul gave these orders. Arise, O sleeper! It is now high time that thou awakest from sleep. He wasn't talking about those that were slumbering in physical sleep. He wasn't talking about those that were physically dead. He was talking to Roman individuals who were unconcerned and indifferent about spiritual matters. He urged them, it's time to wake up. Our salvation is nearer now than it was before. That text in Ephesians 5.14, in addition, reminds us there of a similar command. It's now time to wake up. As we give some thought to that, that takes us back to the parable. What happens when men sleep? What happens when you and I are spiritually indifferent, when we're apathetic, when we're in lethargy when it comes to spiritual matters? Could it be that tares can be sown? Could it be that that's when issues, matters, and movements arise and begin to encumber the matter of truth? and cause men's souls to be endangered by falsehood? Could it be that that's when these awful and terrible terrors can find their way into the local congregations or even to our families? Not only can that be the case, I would ask you to consider some more warnings with me from the Word of God and see if that's not exactly what can often take place. We have looked so far at various passages and that reminds us about some interesting usages of the word sleep. 
is you notice those three occasions and the dangers that can be found in the Bible when those occasions of sleep come. You've already noticed with me the parable of the tares. What happened when men slept? That's when the tares were sown. In the days of Samson and the days of long past, we might remember that Delilah certainly did, was not deserving of his trust based on what she had done in the past. She had asked Samson, what is it that, by, that allows you to have such great strength? Samson at first said, if I'm bound with seven green widths, I shall lose my strength. Well, lo and behold, she tried it. And there were Philistines waiting, and she said, Samson, the Philistines are here. And he burst the wiss, and that wasn't what had bound him. She accused him of lying to her. And she said, how can I love you, and how can you and I have that degree of trust and consideration if you won't tell me the truth? And so next he said, if I'm bound with ropes that have never been occupied... So she bound him with ropes, never been occupied, and in that concourse, she again had Philistines waiting. And when she cried, the Philistines are here, he broke the ropes and was able to do what he had done in days past. Again, she accused him of failing to trust in her. Thirdly, after she pleaded with him a bit more, she said again, what is it that allows you to have this strength? And he on the third occasion said, if the locks of my hair are weaved then I shall not have my strength. One more time, she wove those locks and had Philistines waiting, and one more time, his strength was still there. We can easily see how deceived that Samson was, which only paints an even darker picture of what came next. She urged him and pressed him and pleaded with him, and as love can often do, it led him to divulge the source of his strength. He said, I'm a Nazarite and have been sold for my youth. If my hair is cut and shaven, my strength will be gone. And she had him to fall asleep on her knees. In, his, in her lap and perhaps all the comfort that he might have imagined, she fell, he fell asleep and she cut his hair. Sure enough now, when the Philistines were waiting, Samson rose up and he thought as before able to overcome them, but he was not able to do so, for his strength was now gone. Notice that when Samson fell asleep, disaster befell him. Perhaps in a third instance, isn't it true the church can suffer problems when you and I fall asleep spiritually? When we are not alert, when we're not watchful, that's when things can work their way inward for us, to us, amongst us, in the midst of us, if you will. And in that regard, it can ultimately get a hold that it otherwise could never have had if we had been watchful. I would ask you to notice with me a passage as we read from 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul had much to say about issues relating to the very matter before us today. Specifically, let's read verses 9 through 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 12, and listen to the very carefully worded warning from the God of heaven. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved, and for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might be damned who believe not the truth, 
but had pleasure in unrighteousness. On that occasion, we have a careful description about the following situation. Here are individuals who had the opportunity of truth before them, but yet they chose to believe a lie instead. They accepted it, they believed it, they followed it, and God said allowed them to be so deluded. He didn't force them to believe the truth. He allowed them to make that decision. And did you note with me in verse 12? The result of it, by virtue of that judgment, was exceedingly harsh. Where do you and I stand at the Pippin congregation and in the concourse of our individual lives? Are we spiritually asleep and thus are we in a position to allow tares to be sown? Are we in a position to allow things to work its way amongst us? That is not true. Things that are false. Things that are harsh to the work of the Lord. Things that are troubling and problematic. It goes without saying that in the decades that have now passed us, there have been rather bold warnings presented amongst the brotherhood. There have been voices, if you please, crying prophetically in the wilderness. Individuals like Alexander Campbell. Individuals like N.B. Hardiman and David Lipscomb. Individuals like H. Leo Bowles who worked tirelessly in regard to sounding warnings about what will happen to the church if we aren't awake. Those individuals have now passed the earthly scenes of this life. However, as one reads their writings and compares what was occurring then to what's occurring now, the warnings that they sounded are even more appropriate today than they were then. Those issues that are confronting the church now in some ways are every bit as difficult, every bit as demanding, every bit as serious as they were then. And thus those same warnings need to be sounded by you and by me loudly and clearly so that not only do we warn one another, but we instill within our children and in the generation that shall follow the truth of the matter so that they too will understand the warnings and be able to rightly guard their lives against those things that the warnings are mentioning. It could well be noted in regard to those matters that those gentlemen had a grave concern, and I list only those. Several other men could be listed in their writings or many. As one gives some thought, though, to some of the things that were so troubling to them, oddly enough, some of the things that are troubling to the church today never reared their head back then. You and I face sometimes a little different things. I've listed a few of them for your consideration. Again, I have tried to be somewhat brief in the listing, but as you think about what they represent, matters that associate to them, we can't miss the point. I've listed, first of all, the very issue of society. The church, of course, exists upon earth, and it is in the midst of society. That alone is a great difficulty, isn't it? Because what now takes place in society, give it a couple of decades, and it will wiggle its way into the church in one way or another. That seems to be the way it works. Thus, one always has to be ever cognizant of what's taking place in society and understand the truth or lack thereof of it. If it has no place in the church, then it ought to forever be kept outside. Given that particular means, consider these ideas. The role of women in the church. They're currently... It would not be a far prediction to say this will be the next major troubling issue in the church of the 21st century. 
It'll not be instrumental music and things like that quite so much as this one. I say that because of the increasing notion of this movement. There are now churches of Christ scattered all over this country who have taken the liberty of ordaining women as their preachers, women as those who in some way lead in one way or another. And please understand, it is not my intent to insult in any way the fairer sex, the female as God has created her. She was the pinnacle of his creation. She is the zenith of that which he made in many regards. The description of that woman of Proverbs 31, so virtuous, is still a high point of the Old Testament. But that doesn't, of course, exclude the statements that God made in the New Testament relative to what she has been granted by God the opportunity to perform and to do in the public life and worship of the church. And yet, as I mentioned, there are many congregations within the last five years who have now made the public decision, and they announce it gladly and openly, that they are now of the more modern trend to allow women that which previously they were not allowed to do. Again, I would state that this is going to be a much greater problem in the years ahead. And thus, now we need to settle in our mind. What does the Bible teach about this? Are men going to sleep and allow this to work its way in when it ought never do so? After all, when men sleep, that's when the tares were sown. Congregations east of us in the Carolinas have by and large accepted this aplenty. Congregations to the west of us in Oklahoma, positions in Arkansas and certainly on the west coast. We are, of course, in the Bible Belt in Tennessee. Perhaps are we going to fall as well? Where are we going to stand on this? What does the Bible say? Perhaps the extensiveness of that teaching would wait for a different lesson. But in 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 1 Timothy 2 verses 11 and 12, we find that God has not been silent on this subject, but he has spoken. And did he not say in 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 that I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. In that verse and those that followed, the reasons behind that instruction were given. It wasn't Paul's personal prerogative. He was not a chauvinist, if you please. There were inspired eternal reasons, and notice they had to do with things that had transpired from the creation onward. What, were, what will you and I say? When that issue arises in this area, and it will, it may not be in 2010, it may not even be in 2011, but if this earth shall stand, it will be asked in this area in the far, in the very near future. What about the next issue at hand? The role of the worship of the church. How important is it? Is it so important that there was a timeless pattern set forth in the New Testament and it must never be altered? Or is it possible that the worship can be fluid and it can reflect the society? Which is it to be? Congregations by the numbers around our land have made their decisions in that regard. They have concluded that the worship is a fluid matter. What you do, as long as your heart is in it, is not overly important, so we're told. However, we find a different statement in the New Testament, do we not? We find that John 4.24 still tells us that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Hence, there is a truth that relates to and expounds the boundaries of worship, and to go beyond it would thus be false. You see, worship is not a matter that is fluid with society. It is ironclad in the words of the New Testament. And that worship consists of but five acts approved and set forth by God. We are not allowed to go beyond that because that would then no longer be truth. As one gives some thought to be it mechanical musical instruments or perhaps of other changes in worship. We live in a time when change seems to be the byword of the day. We need something new to reflect the changing needs of a society. Friend, God gave us once for all a gospel that meets every need of all time for all people. We don't need any updated reference to the worship. God has every right to determine how he is to be worshipped. For he is the one being worshipped. It's not us. Worship is not to please me. In fact, worship has nothing to do with associating to the satisfactions of my pleasure. Worship is to adore and honor the God that made me and the God that made you and to give honor to the loveliness of the Son that he sent. And in that regard, worship has been set forth by boundary to you and to me. And in regard to that music, don't we read in texts such as Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There we have the explicit mention of singing, and thus we joyfully look forward to accomplishing that. To go beyond it is to add to what God said, and we are not allowed to add to his word, are we? Revelation 22, verses 18 through 20. Might it be noted perhaps in a third way? Some of the character related to what shall befall the end of time. Premillennial ideas is the name I've given to it. This, too, is another issue that confronts the church. It confronts you and me personally in a very dramatic way. What's going to happen when Jesus comes again? The Bible says so much about that, that if it be the will of God and if things befall as I hope, we'll have a whole series of lessons on that very subject later this spring. But for now, might we notice, there are those who will tell us the church must be of that position of being rather fluid as it notes the astonishment and the sensational nature of what we're so often told. Is he coming back to set up a kingdom, to rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years and there's going to be this utopian society where everybody's going to live in peace and harmony? There won't be any nuclear bombs and warheads? Friend, that's about as sensational as it comes and it certainly does grab the attention of many. There's only one problem. Not a single sentence that I just said is true. You can't substantiate any of that in the Bible. It's a figment of man's imagination and no more. We will look in some detail at that if God shall permit us to do that. You'll notice these ideas are all over the landscape of the religion of our land. What's going to happen when men sleep? That's when the terrors are sown. We at Pippin thus need to ever be alert ever on guard and watchful, for we know these seeds are out there. We must not allow them to germinate here. We must never allow them to start to grow here. In fact, upon our appreciation of them in kindness, we should in fact look forward to being able to instruct and to teach in such a way that those things might be set upon the complete back burner and set aback completely. In regard to those, what about 
other things the church in so many ways has become. Have we not seen it become somewhat like a social organization, a social club? Come together and have some coffee and donuts on Sunday morning. Watch a band play some instrument on a stage and go home and have a nice dinner. Friend, that's not the church. In fact, in some ways, that's reminiscent of what the Lord did when he chased out the money changers and the animals. In fact, Jesus said then that the house of prayer ought not be a den of thieves. Today, there are those who see no problem, who have no issue with allowing the church to become that. But the church cannot be that and be the church. The church is to be a place that honors the truth of God. In 1 Timothy 3.15, the inspired writer put it in language like this. But if I tarry long, that, they may, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is thus founded upon the marvelous truth set forth in the pages of the New Testament. And that truth is unalterable. Truth is truth. It does not change itself fluidly with the times and the culture. Oh, it allows its character to be expressed in any culture. But the truth doesn't reflect what the culture says that it ought to be. Thus, when it comes to entertainment, isn't it true that Jesus still said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Matthew 4, verse 10. It would be interesting to consider some of the things in light of all of these ideas that are prevalent, that are about us, and that certainly will rear their heads even more in the years to come, simply because the church isn't as strong, it would seem now, as it was before. Lastly, what about the fellowship of the church? Who make Christians fellowship? Who can the Pippin congregation fellowship? Can we offer a right hand of fellowship to that church that meets up the road? Can we offer a hand of fellowship and swap preachers in the pulpits to various and sundry other organizations in Putnam County? That has already begun to take place and to happen not far from here. When men sleep, the tares will be sown. I would suggest that we come near the close of our lesson with some passages that clearly warn us. And in these, I would ask your attention as we give some thought to them in the brief moments that remain. If you'd like to take notes and to write them for your own reading or perusal this, this week, certainly that would be a good thing that we each might do. But as you imagine 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, Paul to that church, a church beset with a number of troubling difficulties, said, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Two words capture our attention for this lesson. One is steadfast, the other is unmovable. What then are you and I to be? Unmovable. When it comes to the steadfast consideration of truth, we are to be unmovable. The word simply means that which cannot be moved. Thus, that implies we're to be alert, watchful, on guard, ever vigilant and ready to be on guard to the things that are before us and that are sounding such warnings. Consider also in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Notice, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. 
put on the whole armor of God, a threefold warning that we are to be ever watchful, alert, and ready to understand that that which is taking place about us will find its way amongst us if we are sleeping too much because the tares will certainly be sown. Perhaps in addition we can notice in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 15 which is a passage that seems to me to sound such a dramatic warning. You might notice the reference to that chapter. Previously in the lesson we read verses 9 through 12 that painted a picture of deception, deceivableness, and those that would follow the ways of wrongness. In this very same chapter, three verses later, this is what the apostle said. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught whether by word or our epistle. So in what way was the church to be on guard against that deception, on guard against that evil? He said, Brethren, stand fast and hold to the traditions that you've been taught, to our traditions as expressed by our epistle. You and I fall into that same warning, don't we? We need to hold fast and cling tenaciously to the nature of this word that we have received. This is the truth. We must again be unmovable with regard to it. In the next case, can we not see in 1 Thessalonians 5 or 6, there the direct command is given, let us not sleep as those of the day, but let us watch and be on guard and be sober. That verse, perhaps as much as any other, summarizes the fullness of the lesson this morning. Let us not sleep. Because again, when you sleep, the tares are sown. Let us not sleep, but be sober and to be vigilant. Spiritually, we thus need to ever be vigilant, watchful, and never those who sleep spiritually. Perhaps finally, we can notice in Ephesians 5.14 and Romans 13.11, those two verses that we had noted earlier, the command is given to us, do not sleep, O those who would be of the day, but rather understand our salvation is nearer than when we first began. The lesson this morning has been entitled, What Happens When Men Sleep? We can summarize, perhaps in a very brief way, the fullness of it in words like this. When men sleep, terrible things can happen. When men sleep spiritually, terrible things will happen. That's a certainty. We at Pippin are blessed with elders who are on guard and are watchful, but that doesn't excuse the rest of us. Like them, we too must ever be on guard, watchful and ready with our ear to the ground, as he, if, you, if you please, to ever be aware of what's being taught, what's being said, the impact that it may have, and to try to stamp out that evil and that falsehood as soon as possible. As one appreciates that the tares are sown, when men are sleeping. Might we ask then personally today, what about you and what about me? Are you a faithful and watchful New Testament Christian? If you were at one time baptized for the remission of your sins, are you now living faithfully, ever watchful day by day? Or have you allowed yourself to fall asleep spiritually? Are you not watchful, not, not alert to what's occurring if we could help you to rededicate your life so that you would again be watchful, guarded and guided by love for the truth, we'd be happy to pray for you and with you. Perhaps you've never become a Christian at all. You've never even begun the journey to eternal life. You're headed toward eternal perdition. Today, don't continue that walk, for it's a ruinous walk. It leads to nowhere good. 
Jesus died for you, my friend. Won't you relinquish your life and allow him to dictate and control and lead you to the pathway of everlasting life? If today you are in that situation, believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of those sins in your life. Confess his name in the hearing of others and be baptized for the remission, for the forgiveness of sin. If today we could be of assistance in any of those ways, don't be asleep. The terrors will be sown, but be awake. And if we can assist you in becoming more alert spiritually, let us do that while together we stand and while we sing.